Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I am one of your hosts, Michael Fling, here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I'm so pleased to be joined by the biggest attraction in vaudeville since Tom Thumb, Annika Chapin, Goodspeed's artistic associate and resident dramaturg. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. (laughs) Thank you for giving a shout out to my vaudeville career. I... Uh, definitely am the biggest attraction around because of my murderous lover and husband. I do feel that in a past life, you were absolutely a like Follies girl though, who had like, you know, spectacular headdresses and things like you in a past life, you 1000% were a Follies girl. And I know that's not exactly vaudeville, but it's basically vaudeville. (laughs) Thank you for that. I'll take that. I'm honored. Um, So why don't you give us a quick reminder of what the clue you gave us was uh, in last episode for what show we'll be putting in the spotlight this episode. Why, yes, indeed. So the clue was, I believe, that this was a show for which a Broadway theater, a new Broadway theater opened. And of course, that show was Ragtime, the epic musical with music by Stephen Flaherty, lyrics by Lynn Ahrens, book by Terrence McNally, the great Terrence McNally, and based on the novel Ragtime by E.L. Doctorow. And that theater was what was then called the Ford Center for the Performing Arts, which was opened in 1998 um, with this show, and then subsequently had had three names, the Hilton, the Foxwoods, and now the Lyric. So it's it's had many identities, this theater, but uh, yeah, this was this was a show that opened with a brand new theater. So before we get any further, it's time for the speed test. Hudson's Floor Wax doesn't matter. 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 All right, I think this might be tricky. There's a lot of plot in this show. There's a lot of plot. There's a lot of plot, so we'll see. Hopefully I don't get caught up in uh, characters. Yes, okay, but I have a minute. Okay. A minute on the clock um and i'm going to give you a regular countdown because there's actually so much in this show i can't think of anything that is a good countdown <laughs> all right three two one plot okay so you got three major groups you got um the black americans you have the immigrants and you have um the wasps um beyond that basically it's all so um the the family of wasps led by mother are up in New Rochelle and they discover um, in the yard <clears throat> um, a buried um, child who happens to be the child of Cole House Walker Jr. and Sarah, his um, like lover, girlfriend character. So that's kind of where the thrust of the the majority of the plot is really dealing with, with that journey. But you also have Tata and his daughter who have immigrated from Latvia to make a better life in America. Um, mixed in um, with all the with all these fictional all those fictional characters, you have a ton of actual historical characters like Emma Goldman, uh, Evelyn Nesbitt, uh, Booker T. Washington, uh, Henry Ford, just to name a few. Um, and Sarah dies um, because Cole House's car is trashed. He eventually dies. That's a minute. I mean, it is not- uh, they're so honestly. There is so much that happens. It's hard. Like, yeah, there's so much that happens. But that is, the, I think, the general thrust of the story. Yeah. Yeah. There is 
a lot that happens and everything is intertwined and it's very, very complicated. And I'm sure we will talk more about this. So I think all things considered, you did an excellent job of setting up the, the basic of it. Because I have to say it is a Wikipedia um, summary that is a little tough to get through because there's so many threads, but I would make the case that that is the predominating actual plot that occurs. Everything else is kind of decoration on top of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of an interesting question as to what the main plot is in the show and who is the protagonist. Um, because I think there's there's some conflicting stuff in an interesting way. And I, I don't mean conflicting like it's a fighting itself, but I do think that it is a, it is a complex narrative in many ways. So it's an interesting one to look at. Well, it's a great transition to uh, our next segment, Why God, Why? Why God? Why today? Where we talk about the big idea, what are the authors trying to communicate and what? why are they telling this story? So I say it's a good transition because Annika, spotters will note, Annika loves to, to distill the big idea down from the protagonist's journey and what 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 is that journey? Whereas I tend to go from it from a, what are the things that connect all these characters? And maybe sometimes that includes the title, you know, whatever, we have our various, our various roots for this question. Um, I'm going to make the case, and I don't think this is controversial, but I think Ragtime centrally is exploring this idea of change. And I, I would say specifically seeking stability within change. And, uh, and, I, and I say that because all of the characters are reckoning with a very changing world, a, a radically changing world. Uh, and, and that is uh, encapsulated in this idea of Ragtime, the music of the time that was uh, upending uh, musical norms and and this idea of syncopation, which the literal definition is to displace the beats or accents so the strong become weak and vice versa. And I think it's a really, really, while somewhat academic to think about it that way or to take it to the literal definition of syncopation and ragtime, I think it's instructive when thinking about this show um, in this context because Fundamentally, it is about how each of these characters, each of these groups, each of these historical figures um, is a part of the changing landscape of America at the turn of the 20th century. Um, but I will also obviously add the caveat that it's a massively complex show with lots going on. And I'm fascinated to hear what you have to say, Annika, because we do approach this question from, from different perspectives sometimes. So what would you say is um, the why God why? What do you think is the driving purpose of the narrative? Well, you're certainly right that change, I'd say, is the big overarching thing. And I mean, obviously America, it's very much a show that that is painting a portrait of a specific country at a specific time. Um, I love what you just said about ragtime. It's definitely a time when social mores, class, a bunch of different things are starting to loosen and relax. And this is about that kind of, what some might say, descent into chaos from this like very structured, thing, um, but others might say like a move forwards to uh, a loosening to allow this country to kind of become something better. Um, in terms of like a, a more personal protagonist journey, I mean, this is an interesting show because I think it does sort of have a protagonist. I would say that my candidate for that would be um, Mother uh, more than any other because um, it is 
divided. These narratives are divided very much to these three kind of main characters, each in their own world, Tata, Mother, and Colehouse. But Mother's the one we really start with and track through the entire time. Well, she's also the only one that really connects all of the stories. Yeah, she's really the, yeah, we're presented with that story first. Colehouse really only enters the narrative um, once it's really gotten underway. So even though he kind of takes over as the main character at a certain point, I don't think we're really following. He's actually a character that kind of comes to visit a main character more than he is an internal character. We only get his backstory like actually quite late in a flashback mostly. But um, so um, if we're looking at that, I think the message is really about connecting with other people in a in a human way, basically, to identify the ways that you are like other people, the humanity that connects us all, and opening your heart to that um, and allowing yourself and your opinions and your uh, perspective to change based on that is the way that you will ultimately survive and move forward. Um, I think that applies both to these individual characters um, and the and the country as a whole, that idea that you have to open your heart to change in a real way or else you will get stuck. And I think it's interesting because it plays out in very different ways in different characters, even in someone like Cole House, where it's like, in some ways, I'm not, I mean, I'm not blaming Cole House for Sarah's death, but like it is Cole House's like, I, this has to happen or else I will not get married. That prompts Sarah to go to the, speak to the president that, that causes her to get killed. You know, like whenever a character starts to get very rigid about like, this is how it has to be. Um, it, it is bad for them, basically. Like uh, that that message is underlined. So that's what I would say. It's a it's kind of ultimately about connection um, in a real way between humans, no matter what uh, shape that human you know where that human is from, where that human is, who that human is. Like make the connection on that level, um, and then allow yourself to grow. Yeah. So with that, Annika, I think this is the first time in podcast history that we uh, are profiling a show which gives us one of our segment titles. So why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of Ragtime? I did not even think about that. All right, well, so of course the musical Ragtime was based on a novel Ragtime, which was written by the writer E.L. Doctorow. And Doctorow's family had come to America from Russia, they were Jewish. So that part of his history was very similar to Tata's history. He had that immigration narrative in his own background. Um, but he himself was a writer who had written kind of one major book when he was living in New Rochelle in 1975. and the book that he wanted to write was partially in response to what he felt was being published all around him, which was a lot of fact. Um, everything was being turned into a narrative, but it was like psychology or so sociology or um, nonfiction memoirs written by writers. And he just was pushing against that. So he wanted to write something that was what he called fictive nonfiction, by which he meant he took parts of history, he took real things, real facts, but mushed it all up with his own creation and also created new histories for these historical figures. So he really wanted to push against that idea of like pure fact by creating this kind of mishmash of fiction and fact. So he said it was, uh, as he said, 
an act of revenge, which, you know, sure, that's a good way to write it. Um, and he really mixed in a lot of these historical figures. There are many more of them in the book than there are in the show, although they include quite a number in the show. Um, and he did something kind of interesting for the character of Kohlhaus. Uh, he basically wrote that character as a tribute to a German writer named Heinrich von Kleist, who wrote a short story about a character called Michael Kohlhaas, which is K-O-H-L-H-A-S-S, um, who was a, a German horse dealer during the time of Martin Luther, who becomes an incendiary and a revolutionary. So that character was very much a nod to this German character. And obviously the name comes from there, which is kind of interesting. So after the book was published, it was a big hit. It won the Book Critics Circle Award. And after it came out, it really went down as one of the best English language novels of the 20th century. It's on a lot of top lists including Modern Library, which ranked at number 86 on the 100 best English language novels of the 20th century. Um, Time included it in their uh, 100 best English language novels um, from 1923 to 2005. I don't know why it's those years, but in any case, it's in there. It's on a lot of that kind of list. It's really gone down as a classic American novel. And then in 1981, it was turned into a movie directed by Milos Forman, starring Mandy Patinkin as Tata, Mary Steenburgen as mother, Howard E. Rollins Jr. as Cole House, and then like a truly astounding uh, ensemble cast with everyone from James Cagney to small appearances by Samuel L. Jackson and Jack Nicholson, who was uncredited. Um, that's a bit more controversial. It got kind of good to mixed reviews, but it has some, some big non-fans, including E.L. Doctorow himself. So those are kind of the major elements in Ragtime before it became a show, but I'm gonna hand it over to Michael Fling to tell us a little bit about how the show came to be. In our segment that we call Putting It Together. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. So the big personality to talk about when it comes to creating Ragtime the Musical is the powerhouse producer, uh, Garth Drabinsky, who uh, was, uh, I think the easiest way to describe him is a theatrical impresario uh, who was the executive producer of Live End, um, a company that we will probably, uh, you probably have heard about. And if you Google ragtime, it, it, it very quickly comes up because uh, it was this attempt to create um, a theatrical production company in the style of an old Hollywood movie studio that was an entirely in-house, top-to-bottom production company that did it all, including, you know, owned the theater that then uh, the show went into. But he approached um, E.L. Doctor about turning the magnum opus into a musical in uh, December of 1993. And Doctoro um, as Annika mentioned, really hadn't been happy about the film adaptation of the book and felt that um, it had focused way too much on the story of Colehouse Walker Jr. Uh, and so his stipulation was that if you were going to make it into a musical, you really needed to tell the story of the large interconnected network of characters that the novel uh, tells the story of. So Drabinsky's larger-than-life character, his track record at producing all of these massively huge epic um, pieces, including Phantom of the Opera in, uh, in Canada, the um, showboat, the Halprint showboat that we have uh, discussed previously on the podcast, and, um, and his promise to spare no expense in creating a proper adaptation convinced Dr. O to let him go ahead. So 
Um, Drabinsky went ahead and commissioned playwright Terrence McNally to do a script based off of the novel. Um, and uh, six months later, McNally turned in a 60 page treatment of the about 300 page book that is Ragtime. So then um, Dr. O approved of this treatment, really liked it. Um, and McNally himself credit that took a lot of the treatment, took words right off of the page and said like, this is how I, I think you can't get much better than this. This is how I wanna do it in a very narrative approach from a lot of the characters where they speak in third person and um, kind of narrate the events that go on around them. Um, and then, Drabinsky went about inviting um, some, all the accounts differ, but somewhere between eight to 10 songwriting teams to submit audition tapes to write the songs to the treatment that McNally had, um, had created. And uh, some of these uh, writers include um, reportedly Michael John Lacusa, Adam Gettle, Kander and Ebb, and Maltby and Shire, and Marvin Hamlish, who refused the invitation to um, audition because he uh, claimed not because he wasn't interested, but because he doesn't like to do something he's already done. And he felt having written um, the very famous um, song, The Entertainer back in the seventies, uh, which is most people's introduction to the style of ragtime music, that it, uh, it was territory he had already covered musically and therefore he was not interested in auditioning. But of course the job went to Aronson Flaherty who uh, the the team top to bottom agreed based on the uh, anonymous submission process that tape number three were the people to write the the score and that was Aaron's and Flaherty who had actually they wrote four songs for uh, their tryout three of which uh, remain in the show to this day uh, one was a very early version of the twelve minute prologue that introduces all the characters the second was till we reach that day which is um, the one of the many anthems that appears in the score and gliding which is a really lovely song um, that tata sings to um uh his daughter about the um movie picture book that he makes her um and then they also wrote a song for evelyn nesbitt that was eventually cut from the show uh and of course all those songs continue to develop most particularly the prologue which aaron's and flaherty say uh like to say was the very first thing that they wrote for Ragtime and also the very last thing that they wrote for Ragtime, that it was the uh, the the thing that was changing most was that that with the now very, very famous um, prologue. So the first workshop of the piece happened in Toronto where Livent was based um, and took place in August of 1995 with Joel Gray in the role of Tata and um, uh, Brian Stokes Mitchell uh, as uh, Cole House Walker Jr. in a role that they uh, very much wrote um, thinking about Brian Stokes Mitchell and his talents. But they continued to uh, develop the show. The next semi-stage workshop in Toronto was in May of 1996, where they added Marin Maisie in the role of mother and uh, Peter Friedman as Tata, who previously was known um, just as a straight play actor, but um, made his first official appearance in a musical as Tata. And um, for the second workshop, uh, eventually uh, Frank Galati joined as director, who at that point was most famous for his uh, very uh, also epic staging of another epic novel called The Grapes of Wrath, which was a huge hit on Broadway in the 90s, and Graciela Danielle as the choreographer. So in a weird turn of events, um, they actually recorded the cast album in 1996 prior to there being uh, a production of the show. 
And um, subsequent to starting uh, rehearsals in Toronto, where Dravinsky actually moved his office desk to the rehearsal room, continuing to manage five touring productions, two construction projects, and other various um, projects that were in development, uh, conducting business on his cell phone in front of the cast. So as we said, the goal of Live In was to be this uh, one-stop shop for um, Broadway musicals. So uh, they were in the midst of, they actually renovated and combined what was the Apollo Theater and form, and a theater formerly known as the Lyric Theater into what was going to be the Ford Center for the Performing Arts where Ragtime would premiere. But prior to Ragtime landing on Broadway there, the plan was always to open it in Toronto, then play the Schubert Theater in LA, and then land on Broadway. So um, this like very uh, extravagant um, journey to Broadway for this already epic and expensive musical, which uh, there is, there was tons of press at the time at how unconventional this was, how grandiose and um, I mean, grandiose, that's the, that's the word to describe it. How, how larger than life this adaptation of this epic novel was. So the, the, the buzz surrounding the show was, was really quite a lot before it um, eventually landed on Broadway. Um, and so the show opened in Toronto uh, in 1996 before going to Los Angeles in the summer of 1997 and eventually landed on Broadway at the Ford Center for the Performing Arts. Uh, six months later, actually um, starting performances the day after Christmas, which I didn't realize until I went on Playbill Vault, which was um, just interesting. Um, so yeah, uh, that's basically the the nutshell of Ragtime's journey. Uh, it, if in a lot of ways, it has a quite fast journey in terms of being written. It's a very ex expedited process um, because of this like centralized producing structure that. Uh, live event was committed to and um, how excited really all of the authors were about their collaboration and about working on this piece. So it arrives on Broadway the same season as um, a little show, you may have heard of it, called Disney's The Lion King. Um, and it, it really is a stacked season on Broadway. Audrey McDonald does win her, at this point, third Tony within like a five-year stride. This is the third Tony, um, second for featured actress in a musical for her, um, for her uh, portrayal of Sarah. Um, but um, it does not, it wins best book of a musical and wins best score of a musical, but it loses best musical to um, The Lion King in um, one of those Tony battles that will be written and discussed, written about and discussed uh, for for years to come. Yeah, I mean, those are really two titans battling head to head for sure. There was a critically acclaimed revival that happened in 2009, which um, was actually made Ragtime, the first musical from the 1990s to be revived. And it starred uh, many fabulous people, including Christiane Knoll, who received a Tony nomination for her performance as Mother. And you can also catch on Good Skill on Demand in her concert Coming Alive Again, where uh, I'll let you in on a little hint, she performs back to before. Woo woo! She's glorious. And her rendition of that song is glorious. And the concert is glorious. It's glorious. It didn't run for very long. Um, it ran for only a few months, um, but did garner a lot of uh, critical acclaim and um, Tony nominations, though it did not win any um, any of those um, awards. But uh, it certainly has continued. It is not 
often produced. I, I, I don't think that is, uh, I don't think we can call it often produced just because of how large it is in scope and in scale. Um, but it is um, a, a show that looms large in um, the conversation of musical theater to be sure. Yes, and it's interesting because some of the more notable productions slash revivals um, that have come out of this show have been ones that tend to play around a little bit with how it's staged. Um, there's been one or two that have been outdoors, um, concert versions. I think more than other shows, and perhaps this is because of what you said, it's because it is so large, you, you have to physically have a large cast because you have to have these three groups of people. Um, and it's also just a million different settings and costumes and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think there's something about it that, that causes people to try to reframe it a little bit and uh, strip away a lot of that stuff. It, it, the, the original production has a reputation for being epic in many senses of the word, lush and huge and you know big and full. And I think what people are realizing now is that actually the show itself um, has a lot to offer, even if it's not staged with that same uh, spectacle elements of it. So it's it's really interesting. I have a feeling um, it's we haven't seen the last of it on the Broadway, but I'd be really surprised if it comes back in anything approaching the the same form it it has been before. Well, and we also didn't say it did run a very respectable two years on Broadway, despite not winning a Tony for Best Musical, but. Uh, it was so expensive with 38 musicians in the pit, I think, and almost, and more than 50 on stage. Um, it, it did not recoup its initial investment. And in fact, like Live End went bankrupt um, midway through its run on Broadway. So it even its ownership of the show and day-to-day -day producing of the show changed hands um, midstream. Um, and, and while there was certainly a ton of love for the show in the theater community and within the cast and the company of the show. Um, it, it, and it, like I said, it had a respectable two year run, but it was a, um, definitely did not recoup on, on, on that initial investment. Yes. Um, it's also interesting when you look at that original production, because some of the practices that caused Livent um, and Garth Drabinsky to, implode so remarkably um, color a little bit the success of the show because there were there was some shady reporting there were some tricks they were playing to make it seem a little bit more successful than it was so uh, there's a little bit of still question mark about what what we do know about how well it did um, although we certainly know it it did not recoup and did not ultimately uh, establish itself as the mega success that Livent was requiring. Um, side note, this podcast is about Ragtime, the show, the musical, which we will go into. The story of Livent and Garth Grabinski and what happened with uh, this show and that whole business model, and it really is a business question, um, is completely fascinating. And there are some really interesting articles about it. If we start talking about it here, this podcast will quickly become solely about that. So if you're interested, go and seek those out. Um, but we will not be kind of going into the whole entirety of that situation. Uh, but I do recommend you go look at it. It's really interesting, especially if you're interested in um, producing on Broadway. It's kind of bunk bonkers, not so thing that happened. 100%. 
So, Annika, with that, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside your daddy's son? What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. All right, so let's dive into your daddy's son from Ragtime. This is a song that is midway through the first act of the show. Um, and it's a long show, so midway is a fair chunk of time into the, sh- the first act. And if you look at the history of the show, this song actually wasn't originally in it. After they did the first read-through, which was only the first act, uh, Lynn Aarons and Stephen Flaherty came to Audra McDonald, who was playing Sarah, and said that they hadn't written enough for her to sing, partially because Audra McDonald has an amazing voice and you want to make her sing whenever you can. But also it was clear that they needed a moment to get to know Sarah and get the audience on Sarah's side because what we know of her so far is that she's done this really awful thing, which is to bury her newborn child in the ground. Um, So without that, it it wasn't making sense that she would be a good match for Cole House, who we love. And um, we just were missing that, that moment of connecting with her. And so a few days after that, they came in with this song. And of course, history was made. Audra got her third Tony for this role, I think largely due to this song and what it does for this character. Um, So as I said, this is midway through the first act. Sarah has buried her child in the ground, which has been discovered by mother. Mother has taken responsibility for Sarah and the baby, Um, But we really haven't heard anything from Sarah. Uh, She really hasn't spoken much at all, either to us, the audience, or to Mother. So we know that she's quiet. We haven't had an explanation much about what has happened, why she did this thing. And we've seen Cole House sing the Getting Ready Rag, which is this great number, full of energy and um, optimism. And he's going to go get himself kind of dressed up and he's going to go get Sarah back. So we've had that. And then um, right before this scene, we get the scene of him having his first confrontation with these firemen where they don't do anything to him or his car yet, but it's very clear that um, there's tension in the air. They are racist. um, They are out for him. They have it out for him basically. So this song has no, there's no transition from that scene into this song. Basically, Sarah walks on stage. She's in the attic of the house. She's by herself with this infant and starts this song. So let's start it out and uh, just dive on in. And this is kind of a longer song than I usually do. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of jump in it and do larger chunks than I might normally do. So this is a bold beginning to the song. No lyrics at all, only this voice, this ethereal, beautiful voice. I mean, obviously this is Audrey McDonald, so not all voices are this voice. 
But it's this simple, gorgeous, haunting voice singing the simple, gorgeous, haunting melody. It's really kind of a small beginning and it draws you right in. Um, Sarah is a character we know is quiet. And again, we haven't really gotten any insight into this terrible thing she did. And in this moment, which is such a private moment with her and her son, we, we start with this haunting lullaby. We recognize this intellectually that this is a lullaby she's singing to her son. She's kind of crooning this maternal song to her child, but it's, it's not a traditional lullaby. It's, it's full of much more pain than we associate with a lullaby. It's really melancholy. There's a lot of hurt in it um, as much as it's soothing. It's unusual, it's emotional, and it's a little eerie. Um, it sounds a little bit ghostly, which is kind of an interesting tip of the hat to what ha what ends up happening to Sarah. Um, and it it just captures us after you know the the brightness and the staging of the show, which has a million people on stage and all of these people moving around and getting ready rag and it's a dance and then we have this other scene. You know, it's like there's a there's been a lot going on for almost this entire show. And then we just bring it right down to this quiet place where it's just the pure emotion of a note. There's nothing that our brain can connect to here. It's just pure feeling and we feel it it really just stops the whole thing i mean every time you see the show you can you can pretty much see the entire audience just kind of draw forward by this beginning daddy played piano played it very well music from those hands could catch you like a spell so this is Obviously, we get the lyrics here. And I love that the first line here, Daddy Played Piano, has this climbing set of notes. It sounds a little bit like someone doing a scale playing a piano. Um, and of course, the orchestration has the solo piano playing right behind the melody. It makes the memory very present for us as it is for her. Because again, there's nothing staged in this whole song. Um, this is only us listening to everything she's saying, and the music is really illustrating it there for us. And I love that the lyric here is catch you like a spell. Um, music from those hands could catch you like a spell. It's a beautiful lyric, and it captures what we know is true of Cole House, which is that he's an amazing musician. Um, but there's something about that that's a little tiny bit sinister too. A spell is something that takes you over. It's not necessarily a good thing. You know, witches cast spells. You're, you're under someone else's control. Um, and I think that that's present in the beginning of this too. Uh, she fell under his spell and then she did this terrible thing. There's a little bit of a, there's like a disconnect between her singing the song now and this version of herself that was younger and, and a little bit more susceptible to Cole House. She was under a spell. I think that's not an accident that they've put that in here. He couldn't make you love him for the tune was done. You had your daddy's hands. You So. 
And now we get a kind of continuation of that. He could make you love him again. It's like she's, she's been made to do something. Um, and so this, you are your daddy's, you have your daddy's hands. You are your daddy's son in a little tiny bit. And this can depend on the performer doing this song. You can, you can put a little spin in this of her associating the baby with the sinisterness that that is in here about Cole House. Cole House can cast a spell. He makes her love him. And, and the baby is like him. The baby is him. And I think that's fair to see in there because she did a, she did a kind of crazy thing. She panicked, but also, you know, she was not entirely responsible for her actions. And she's associated the baby with Cole House and this, this sense of, of being kind of out of control. You could put that in there. But of course, again, we get this beautiful haunting melody, this, this melancholy sound. And then we get that beautiful when the, when the vocal drops out and we just get that little instrumentation um, pulling it through. Up and left me, I just up and run. Only thing in my head, you were your daddy's son. Okay, and here we get a little bit more information. Uh, Cole House didn't know she was pregnant. He was cheating on her. He had other things on his mind. She just kind of panicked. And when Cole House left her, she ran. And the only thing in her head was you were your daddy's son. So it's interesting. That could that could mean a lot of different things. That could mean that she has something that is Cole House and she's just trying to run away from that whole thing. So she kind of wants to, to get rid of it. Or, or it could mean that, um, you know, she she wants to punish him. I mean, there's, there's a lot in there. And I think it's, it's interesting because Sarah is not a particularly, um, she's got like a simple poetry in her line, but I don't think this is a character that has been really used to self-reflection. Um, and so I don't think even she potentially knows some of these answers. And I, I think that's a beautiful thing to build in that kind of ambiguity to a song like this, because not all characters have an amazing ability to identify their emotional states or their emotional histories, especially when they've done something like this. So it's interesting to have that kind of ambiguity. And of course, we're about to get into this like emotional heart because now she's she's reliving what happened to bring her to this place. So we're going to go into this uh, darker place. Couldn't hear no music. Couldn't see no she was frightened, crazy from the fright Tears without no comfort, screams without no sound Only darkness and pain, the anger and pain The blood and the pain, I buried my heart in the ground In the ground
so lovely and such a lot here. So, so now obviously, even though she's telling the story to her child, now it slips away from her and she gets caught up in the emotion of what is obviously the scariest part of this whole thing. She couldn't hear music, couldn't hear it, see the light. She just was trapped in this kind of terror. And we can feel that in that repeating, like that, that dun, 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 that's happening here. It's just like, she, it's just scary where, what she's feeling here. She's completely lost all of her senses. Um, and we can hear this agitation in the orchestration. We can hear that she's fully back in that moment. Um, and the terror of what really happened, which was that she gave birth to a child completely on her own. You know, she wasn't helped by anybody. Nobody could hear her. So in addition to just the panic of leaving Cole House and having this baby, she's also a, a woman giving birth to a child and who cannot make that experience known to anybody, which is another terror. So it's like trauma on top of trauma here. Um, and then they've done a really clever thing here, which is that they're placing her memory on the same melody that she started with for Daddy Played Piano. But then they're just like ripping apart this melody and throwing all of these um, things that break up what we would expect. Um, we've got the word fright on that long high note, which we just hear in our gut. And then repeating the word pain again and again in that kind of repetitive phrasing. And it just makes us feel like she's in labor. We're hearing that, that's that pain coming in waves. Um, and then we get that big range on, I buried my heart in the ground, which is a mix of all of these things, right? She's ripped her heart out of her body, which is what you know it can feel like to give birth to a child. But she's also taken that heart and she buried it. She put it somewhere else. Um, so all of that is in here. And then of course she comes back. She's able to pull herself out of this and come back to when I buried you in the ground. We can hear her pull out of this memory and come back to where she is, which is telling this to her son. playing still Mama can't forget him Don't suppose I will God wants no excuses I have only one I know, that's a terrible place to stop because it's such a beautiful, like ugh, you're just at the precipice and she's about to come down into this beautiful other thing but, um so after we have that big emotional moment where she's she's going back into the trauma of giving her birth and and as we leave that part she's basically it's just vocal all the orchestration is pretty much dropped out just as the world kind of left her behind a little bit in that moment she's just back in this room now um the trauma is gone and she's back alone it's just her and this baby um and then we go back to this place um which is calmer back to where it was in the beginning but it's also not where it was in the beginning these lyrics are daddy played piano betty's playing still mama can't forget him don't suppose i will this is different than the coal house she described in the beginning of this song who was casting a spell over her made her love her like that sense of like she still is a little bit scared by 
how powerful her love for him is and how powerful this this love and attraction is and how powerful he is. But now it sounds like someone who is moving past this. This Cole House feels like someone that she loved, but that is who is in her past. She will always love him a little bit. She acknowledges that, but it doesn't feel like he's an active threat in the same way that those initial verses were, were tinged by that. And then she kind of moves past um, and says this thing about like, God wants no excuses. I have only one. This is getting to the place where she's really having this moment with her son. It's really not about her memories of Cole House. It's not about any explanation. She's lived through this trauma. She's relived it again. And in doing so, it really feels like she has managed to come through it in an active way that the, the Sarah who is at the end of this song explaining this to the child is a, is a Sarah who has grown up. Um, even over the course of this song. So beautiful. Um, okay, so again, we hear you had your daddy's hands, which we've heard several times. Um, but there's something different about this. It's not you have your daddy's hands. It's you had your daddy's hands, right? That thing that she does in the beginning where she's equating the baby with Cole House and the, the spellcaster is done. She saw that the baby had Cole House's hands. Um, and in the beginning, that was a more active threat. Now it was in the past. At that point, she had seen that he had his daddy's hands, but he doesn't have them anymore. She doesn't see it that way. She's really in a place where she is more stable. Um, she is able to be a mother to this child. We are not worried about her in the same way we might be from the beginning. Um, because obviously we should be worried about her a little bit. She was a very, disturbed and upset person who is able to do a really unthinkable thing, which is to potentially murder her child. Um, it's, it's all in here. She's really kind of come through it. And then this is my favorite part of this entire song because they have this melody. You, you had your daddy's hands, but then it's broken by this beautiful heartbreaking little moment. It goes high again, cuts right into the melody we expect for her to say, forgive me. Just it's almost in the clear. It's just this beautiful little high. It feels both kind of exposed and vulnerable and also quite fragile. Um, and it just, it, no matter what it hits you, it's, it's something we're not expecting because it's not something that's happened at any point in the song before. And because it's unexpected, it just feels so honest. It feels like we've cut right into Sarah's heart. She is truly asking her baby to forgive her for what she has done. Um, and that makes all the difference because we understand who she is now. Not only is she this person who has gone through this very difficult thing and who made this horrible mistake, but out of this moment of, of darkness and terror and fear and pain, She's now someone who sees what that was 
sees why she did it and understands how bad it was. You know, she really has, as I said, she's grown up. Um, and it's almost impossible to come through this song and not feel like we know Sarah on a much deeper level and, and that we love her because she is this person who is not necessarily strong, um, much stronger now, but she's a person who made a, a big mistake and now has grown and learned from it. Um, and is, and is so there's such a like loveliness and purity to the fact that she's singing the song to her baby. You know, she is honestly asking a baby to forgive her and we really love her and, and care about her and, and it's going to make her death later so much more heartbreaking. Um, and it makes us, you know, actually it almost, it's funny when I read the thing about, um, them Aaron's and Flaherty feeling like we didn't think that Sarah was good enough for Cole house when, when she didn't have the song, um, after this song, I almost feel like you almost feel like Cole house isn't good enough for her. Like you want Cole house to work hard to have to win her back because we now feel that she is something special. We see what she, what he sees in her, but we're also like, don't you treat her badly. <laughs> so it really restores the balance um, and makes her the special heart of this show in the way that she really is. And that will bring us to one of our favorite segments. How do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues that Ragtime has, both internal and external. So Ragtime, as we've said, occupies a very individual space, I think, in the musical theater canon. Um, But it doesn't occupy that individual space in the sense that it is a huge epic novel um, that attempts to distill a lot of plot down to a digestible two and a half hour piece that also has songs. Um, So uh, we've certainly discussed this question when it comes to other adaptations, but Annika, I'm gonna ask the very quick question and say, do you think that Ragtime the Musical is a successful distillation of this epic story into its musical form? And, and I will open and say, I could absolutely take point counterpoint on either side of this. I went on a whole journey with it myself as I was reading it. I think there are certain things it does well. I think there are certain things I don't know that it does super well. Um, but what's, what's your take on its, uh, on its strength of adaptation? I would say overall, it succeeds remarkably well. Uh, it is a huge amount of storytelling. And I deal with a lot of, of shows that are adaptations of source material. And one of the most difficult things to do is to take something, especially a novel where you have literally hundreds of pages of nuance and storytelling and character and put it on its feet into a necessarily truncated version of that story with songs, Um, you know, so musicals have a little bit less plot anyway, I'd say, Um, you know, you, it's very difficult. And what you often get is this kind of like crazy whiz bang drive by like plot, 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 plot. And if you don't know the source material, you're sitting there going, wait, what? Or it just, you know, breezes past these things that you don't really understand why you're being told that, but they're like kind of ticking boxes on characters and things like that. Um, 
when you read the script of ragtime, I mean, I was doing it again last night. It, it just completely sucks you in. You, you really don't feel like you get shortchanged on any one of these characters, which is the other thing that's quite difficult to do is to balance. You have three major narratives. Um, that itself, whether it's adapted or non-adapted is also very difficult because almost inevitably one of those stories will sort of take over and then the other ones are not as interesting. And then you suddenly have, as an audience member, you only want to watch that one story. And then what do you do with these other stories? It's very hard to get the balance right so that you feel like you know each of those characters, each of those stories enough, and you don't have one that's just better than the others. Um, so high degree of difficulty on a number of different levels with this narrative, but my God, you just get it with this show. You, the script balances those three stories really well. Um, and in bold ways, like I said, it kind of does uh, like seed the floor to some of them. You know, Cole House is established in the first number, becomes probably the most major element of the plot for a long time, but doesn't start out that way, which is kind of an interesting choice. Um, you know, you, you care about Tata and the little girl story, the way that all of these stories are woven together in a way that actually feels real and doesn't kind of feel like, oh, and then these two have a scene, whatever, you know, it's it really cool. And I think what Terrence McNally has done in a brilliant way is to, is to frame it in that direct address kind of you are being told a story way, which gives you a lot more leeway to be able to convey plot. Because if you're just having characters talk to each other, then you have that horrible thing, which is kind of an exposition dump um, where you have to get a lot of history or a lot of setup or a lot of context into scenes between characters that they wouldn't ever be saying that to each other about, you know, um, something that has happened to them or something that they both would know. So by doing that, th that's a brilliant choice and allows us to be just told stuff. Um, both internally and externally throughout the novel. The, oh, I keep doing it. I keep doing it throughout the show. Um, and uh, I think it's just, and, and it reads, it's so engaging. I mean, a lot of the times when we're prepping this podcast, I, I'm reading a script and I don't really get super sucked into the script necessarily. Some of them are much more things that live on their feet, but this is a really engaging script. When you start reading this script, you just want to keep reading it. It is something that is very, um, it just pulls you in. There's not a lot of fat on this script, which is pretty amazing considering how much stuff is in that original um, uh, novel. Do I think it's all totally successful? No, I definitely think that there's certain places that they could probably trim something out. There's one or two characters where I'm like, let's just, like, we really don't need this at all. Looking at you, grandfather. Um, you know, but on the whole, I think they really, really did an excellent job of it. Uh, so uh, first off, you bring up so many interesting things that bring up a ton of other things that I wanted to talk about. So I, because um, first, I, I, what I, what I would say is I, I actually think in some ways the weakest part of the adaptation is right after the prologue is like the first little chunk after that I actually think is kind of the weakest bit. Now I say that and like that I'm not quite sure why we're with Evelyn Nesbitt right at the top. I don't really like Goodbye My Love all that much. Like it's a little bit of a slow start for me after what is such a great opening. But the flip side to that 
in terms of like what all that I'm like questioning to Evelyn Nesbitt and some of the like entertainment type aspect it absolutely pays off later when we get to Emma Goldman and you see the journey that they take you on with younger brother which I think it's important to say that um Terrence McNally very much feels like younger brother is like the beating heart of ragtime and like really has an affinity for that character and for that character's journey and and he I think extremely successfully takes you on a journey with that character that that is very explicitly you start in this one place and he ends in a completely different um, place and is really awakened to the the causes of social justice and to how he can play a, a, an active role in political life, um, which I, I, I so that is all to say, I think it's a very successful journey. Um, the flip side of that that I'm going to engage with you on because it's my next question and point is I agree that the narrative element is one of the strengths of the adaptation. I also think it is also kind of the Achilles heel of the adaptation, because I think that at least for me, and maybe this is my own personal taste and my own personal kind of aesthetic, I think it leads to an increased need for the music to deliver all of your emotional truth for characters. And it leaves us a little bit on the outside and a little bit more of a passive experience as opposed to watching action happen or being told about what's happening, which has effective you know, uses and times and whatnot. But I do wonder whether or not that adds a certain kind of labor or laboriousness onto the proceedings that make it seem more dense than it necessarily needs to be or leaves the audience somewhat stunted in their ability to connect with all of the characters. That is not a fully formed thought and it's really more a question almost of aesthetic and taste. Um, it's something we've talked about certainly when it comes to, I was thinking about Great Comet a lot as we were, as I was reading it again and thinking like, okay, well that show also has quite a bit of narrative. Um, and I, but you know, if I were to compare this with Great Comet, I would say, well, this succeeds in spades, I think. Uh, it, it, in terms of emotionally delivering a score that like does a lot of fantastic lifting of ca characters' inner truth and life and distilling that into in a different way, obviously, than Great Comet does. But I, I, I'm curious what your thoughts on that are. Like, do, do, you, um, do you agree that like, while it's a strength, it also hinders the show a little bit from being um, as maybe emotionally um, I don't say poignant, but as as um, as uh, dramatic, I guess, as it as it could be. I think that's a really interesting point because I see exactly what you mean, and you're correct that using that as a device does necessarily put the audience a little bit at arm's length. In some ways, it's kind of it's not super far away from Brecht and and the idea of making the audience not able to really connect with the characters on stage because they are talking to you and you're not you're not able to sort of get into their skins in the same way. I think my counter for in this example would be that while that is true in general and I definitely see what you mean and certainly in, in moments in this, I think having a a book writer who is as brilliant a playwright as Terence McNally is, 
really allows them to avoid that in many ways, because what Terrence McNally is able to do is get a ton of meat into these little tiny scenes um, and sometimes into a line without it feeling too much on the nose emotionally. And I'm not even sure how he achieves that sometimes, you know? I have to say, I completely agree. I was really struck by that on this, on this read, like how yeah. uh, some of the, his, his ability to, to do that is, is quite remarkable. It's really amazing. And, and there's also like a lot of room in the script for actors and directors and creatives to, to calibrate different things, um, which they're, isn't always in something like this where it's like bah, 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 hundreds of years and lots of stuff happening. Um, so there are just really like, I, th I think we, we are able to learn a lot more about those characters and feel a lot more connected to those characters than we might otherwise be. I mean, the line that, that hops to mind is when little brother, which this might be a line from the novel too. It's such a good line. When little brother um, is so frustrated with a younger brother, <laughs> little boy, uh -huh. little brother, younger brother is frustrated with father's sort of, inability to see what's really going on and has that just killer line about you've seen, you've traveled everywhere and you've learned nothing. And I hate you basically. And like, ah. it's so devastating and it's so true for both those characters. Um, so that's what I would say is my, my answer to that. Yeah. The, the music definitely has to do a lot of heavy lifting in certain, in terms of emotional uh, portraiture and interior stuff. But um, I think it's all seated in those scenes so that, when those moments come, it's not a surprise because I think there are shows for which you get into the emotions in the song and you're like, who is this character? This is like totally different from what I'm seeing in this other person. So um, yeah, credit to Terrence McNally for for really shaping in very, very small amounts of, of text uh, who these characters are and making them recognizable. And I think also shout out to Aaron's and Flaherty for their ability to mimic that style in a lot of their songs as well. Mm -hmm. And also have, they have a remarkable ability to, to use that um, quite effectively in songs and also in, in a musical way, do what he's able to do in text where you also then have extremely poignant lyrics and moments musically that, that get exactly what you need very uh, I'll say quickly and efficiently and, and, and I guess pithy, but uh, in a quick and efficient manner that is um, not so a highbrow or complex that you lose the thought. You, it, it's, um, it's not to say that it's simplistic, but I, I, there's an accessibility to how they write that I think um, is, um, I'll evoke Oscar Hammerstein in a way that like there is kind of a universality to a lot of I think Lynn's lyrics that I, I find appealing. Um, I mean, I think you're, you brought up something interesting too, which is that um, there is something about the music that is both uh, universal and also has a, has a foot in cliche um, a fair amount. Um, and I think What's interesting about that is that, you know, the novel itself has the same thing that the show has kept, which is that these characters are called mother, father, younger brother. There's a little Tata, which just means father in Yiddish. Um, but there is something about this story that is drawn with, as 
uh, as much as these characters, you love them and you come to know them, it's, it is drawn with a bold brush a little bit. It's sort of a, um, in many ways, a story that I think is supposed to stand in for a lot of stories rather than be specifically the story of this family. You know, it's, it is a, a very traditional white American family where the mother is the, the homemaker and the father is an explorer. And, you know, there's, um, there's a lot of this narrative that is that kind of like archetype thing. Um, and so the fact that the music is also dealing in cliches a little bit feels like it's actually still in that world where it's, it's not super specific sometimes. And sometimes it's a little bit like, what does that actually mean? You know, like, I mean, it, we've had a little debate with the, the song about we'll ride on the, on the wheels of a dream, which, um, I have it's been. a metaphor for the car that the car is a symbol of the American dream and and so we'll ride on the wheels oh, of that dream like of course, I don't of think that that's that crazy I don't like, think it's that crazy uh, either but it's very it's a yes. little bit of an advertising slogan right it's a little yes. bit of like a, nobody really says that if you said that to your wife like we're going to ride on the wheels of a dream you'd be like Oh my God, what are you talking about? I can't believe that you're accusing the musical that resided in the Ford Center for the Performing Arts of being a sales pitch for cars. What? <laughs> then there would be an adorable number about Henry Ford and how he's the leader of, I mean, I would never, I would never say that. You know, obviously that we've, we've not talked yet a ton about the, um, the racial politics of of ragtime, uh, of which, of course, is a central narrative thrust, um, obviously predominantly about um, Black America, but also immigrant America and and the um, changing politics of of various immigrant classes within America at the time. Um, it, it really led me to this question as I was I went on a journey with all of my opinions on the show as I was rereading it, which like at one point I was like, wow, wow. Ragtime is like a show that speaks to now. Like, oh, why is like, everyone should be doing ragtime right now. Like, oh my God, the social upheaval and and questions about how to, you know, again, my thesis of it being stability in a changing world. And went like, oh, what a show to be looking at right now. And then the flip side of me was like, oh, or is this like exactly the wrong show to be looking at right now? Like, where do we think Ragtime with its, let's acknowledge, uh, entirely white writing team? Um, how, do we, how do we think, you know, it's, its use of racial epithets is certainly, uh, I'm gonna say liberal meaning uh, that, the, that it does not. Uh, There's a few it of them. Quite it, it, it uses it quite a lot um, to, uh, uses the n-word quite a lot and uh while historically that may be accurate i think we have um changing uh perspectives um on on the necessity of that um and the the harm that that can cause and the the narratives that that perpetuates um so you know what are what are our thoughts on on ragtime in current America? Where, where, where does this show stand uh, in, the, in the changing landscape of American theater? Such an interesting question. And I was asking myself the same question when I was rereading it. You know, in terms of the question of racial justice and the racial plot, I, 
to me, what I think is this, this goes back a little bit to the writing um, because I think that there's so much space in those scenes um, and there's a lot of nuance. And I think there's a there's definitely a way that you could stage ragtime now, especially I would love to see someone who was not um, a white director um, have at this piece because I think there's a lot more, there's, there's a lot of room for subtext in this show. And there's a lot to be done with what's there. I mean, one of the things that really struck me when I was rereading it was the scene between Colehouse and father and Booker T. Washington in the Morgan Library when Colehouse is, is having this standoff. Because in reading it again, you know, there's so many times that Colehouse is asking both of those characters, will I get a fair trial? Will I be able to come out? Will, are they just going to basically kill me? And both father and Booker T. Washington are like, no, 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 you're going to get a fair trial. Like I wouldn't have come back here if I didn't believe that these were good men and that, you know, honor and, and truth, et cetera, et cetera. And then of course, book, uh, Colehouse walks out the door and is killed immediately by police. And in reading the scene, I thought, you know, it's so funny. It's not clear from the scene whether Colehouse knows the answer or not. You could play it that he is really asking this question and he, he's going to give himself up if he knows he's going to go on trial or that he knows exactly what is going to happen when he walks out that door. And in making father say, oh, no, I believe you're going to get a trial. What he's doing is pointing out the foolishness of father and the naivety of Booker T. Washington's philosophy. Um, and it just really resonated with me that if you did this so that Cole House kind of knows the reality of the world, having gone through his own struggle with his car and how just not interested in helping him, everybody was, that seems like it's hugely resonant for right now, that this is you know, obviously we live in a world where the notion of a black man who is being killed by police because he's perceived as dangerous and not worthy of a trial um, is only more resonant, unfortunately, in today's America. And it, with a scene like that, I think Terrence McNally has given you the space to infuse that scene with that if you want to you know, that Cole House is the one who knows how America works. And this kind of blinkered white guy who's like, everything is fair, everything is great, you know, is an idiot. I mean, father's a bit of an idiot. So maybe an idiot is not fair, but like, he's, he's naive. He doesn't understand how America works because he's never had to be the person who's been in this position. And, you know, you can believe in justice. You can believe that everybody gets a fair trial if you are on the side of the things that that would never question that, you know, if you are part of the ruling elite. So there's a lot of that in this show. And I think that that would be really interesting to explore in this day and age. Um, 
I mean, I think that scene is poignant, though, either way, because uh, if Cole House decides to be optimistic that, like, maybe things are going to change, I mean, I think either way, it's making us the same. I, I think mm-hmm. this, the point is valid. I want to say it's the same, but it's very valid and resonant, I think, regardless of your point of view, because that scene exists. I, I Not to, you may be able to get to this, but I think the the where my question is, is like, but it's never explored beyond that. He he goes, he's shot, and then suddenly it's like, no! And ragtime was over. We moved. It's like, well, okay, whoa. Like, you know, it, it does, I don't know that it gives the space to then but I, reckon with that. It's just kind of like, okay, we've placed, I don't want to call it a white savior story because it's it, it is not... It's the opposite. It's a useless father story. But but in general, it does center the white family and the white perspective in the center of of these stories of people of lesser agency and lesser power and and what and at the end of it, like you know, the white immigrant becomes rich because he worked. Like there are, you know, I I I don't know. It's it's it, it lives in a very messy while poignant messy space which is america right on a certain level that is america but yes and you're totally not wrong i mean you're definitely not wrong it does center the white experience i might argument argue that it it in some ways the structure of it is mirroring what is happening in america so that that first number begins with like the house of new rochelle the white family the fact that they're the ones who who get the titles that are just father, mother, like, you know, they don't, they don't even have to have defining names because they're so central to the narrative. Um, but then by the end, that family unit is completely broken apart. Cole House has really taken over as the character you care about. Um, and Tata has, has managed to kind of drag himself through his own ingenuity to success by using a form that didn't even really exist at the beginning of the story. So, so in some ways they are kind of showing you the decentralization of that white nuclear family. Um, but the other thing I would say is, uh, yes, you're right. It doesn't really reckon with that question, but I think the lack of reckoning, if you do it right, could be the reckoning. You know, If you're sitting in the audience and you're watching that scene and what you're left with is the gut churning sensation that this story has not changed, (laughs) you know, that, that black people have to resort to extreme measures to, to receive something even remotely like justice. And then in that fight for that, they are seen as being even more vilified and then they are killed for being dangerous. You know, like, like if, if you can leave the audience with not a necessarily like finishing that, but kind of leaving them with it unfinished, and then maybe that would, that would be the only effective end to that. So, so I think there's space, that is to say, there is space in there for, for some very nuanced and interesting conversations about race today, not only in the you know, like 1998 world and certainly not, not only in the, the early 20th century world, but, but also, yes, um, there's still some problems, certainly. And um, it's not necessarily, like, I think you'd have to grapple with this if you're gonna do it. You'd have to be very smart and thoughtful in your approach. 
And that will bring us to our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we talk about some of our favorite things about Ragtime. So, Annika, who is your favorite character in Ragtime? And there are so many, but who is your favorite? Oh, that's such an interesting question that I should have prepared. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll open and say, it's for me, it's hard not to pick Mother. I think Mother is so intriguing and 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 her journey is is quite interesting and and she is a um a consistent voice of moral clarity throughout the entire proceedings which uh is definitely needed um and valued uh, there are so many interesting characters though uh, so it, it's hard to hard to i mean like we've talked about younger brother quite a bit but even Sarah and the complexities of Sarah are are beautiful and and messy and and but quite interesting. I mean, I there, are, and then you also have Emma Goldman who's out here. Like, I, I mean, they're all interesting. So I I kind of would would not be shocked by any response. Um, but who? So I think I'm going to say mother. But who would be yours? You know, it's hard for me to say that this is my favorite character because I don't like him, but I do like watching the journey he goes through um which is father weirdly enough i'm i'm always really interested by this character because it's almost impressive that in this whole narrative he manages to see nothing i mean you know like he's kind of a willfully ignorant not he's a willfully closed-minded character and that's not something you often see in drama and I do think it's a really interesting journey to watch him basically not go through um I do think that he he does grow though I mean like his final moment in saying that he's a fine young man or what what he's a fine young boy whatever he says about um Cole House's son I think is a very poignant lovely like almost vindicating but just like okay like you finally made a step well yeah a little bit forward but yeah they give you just enough to still feel a sort of pity for him that he doesn't he cannot move fast enough for the world around him it's it's not a person who can survive in in a country that is changing as much as America changes. And I think that's a really interesting portrait. What is your favorite song in the um, the wide, wide score of Ragtime? You know, it's so funny. I know that this is a song, um, I mean, this is a score that's a little bit better known for its ballads and certainly like Back to Before is a really beautiful, beautiful song, Wheels of a Dream. I mean, there's like all of these big soaring ballads, but I have a great soft spot for the up-tempo numbers in this score. Um, especially since there's not a great deal of humor in this show. And I think there's a lot of a lot more humor in those um, songs. Uh, and also like, like little moments where it's like, like I think the Henry Ford number is very, very catchy. Um, and I'm just, you know, Girl on the Swing is another one that was a contender for me too, because it's very catchy too. I get stuck in my head and I know this is not the best number. We've already brought it up in a different context. You might make an argument that this is one of the worst numbers in this show, but I'm just going to say, I've always thought it was really fun and I love the spit chorus. I like that baseball song. Oh, 
<laughs> cut it. You could cut it. You could cut, cut it. it. But I like it. Since it's there, I'm going to enjoy it. There, I listen. I I listen. I get it. I mean, I the I I think I thought I was kind of hoping you were going to say getting ready rag, which I think is a great number. Getting ready rag um, is also really fun. It's a great number. Um, I, it's hard for me to not. I mean, this could also go into my like miscellaneous things that kind of is really to me. But the prologue is so powerful. Oh, and yeah. so moving. It's like I I can't like I listen to the prologue of Ragtime more than I more than any other bit of it. I listen to the prologue. I, I, it's such a, oh my God. I mean, it's the journey, the growth, the progression of everything. The It's it's just incredible. So I, I can't not say much as I love Wheels of a Dream until we reach that day. There are, you know, lots of really great songs, um, but I, so prologue is my answer. That's a great answer. I mean, it's, it's one of the best opening numbers of a show of all time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about ragtime? Well, this is, this is truly, um, <clears throat> this is truly a, a niche thing. So um, in the studio cast recording that they made before the show opened, there was a song that was subsequently cut called the showbiz and it was a number between Houdini and Evelyn Nesbitt and I have I listened to that album a lot when I was a kid and there's a lyric in that song that I think of a lot um and the line is I'm buried alive I hang by a thread and people pay money to see if I'm dead like mama once said that's the showbiz that's Houdini's opening verse and something about the line um and people say, and people pay money to see if I'm dead. I think about that a lot. I mean, I think it's sort of like weirdly nails an element of celebrity culture that nothing else has in a way. So I, I really, I mean, I'm not arguing for that, that song to be restored to the show or anything, but um, just in terms of weird like bits of musicals that have been cut or didn't make it into shows that I nonetheless think of a great deal um the lyric from that's the show biz and people pay money to see if i'm dead trust me now that you think about it now you're gonna think about it i mean like there's so many things where it's just like that that you know that that crazy thing that we have where it's like with celebrities it's like we want to we love them but also we would just like want to see if they die (laughs) you know it's like it's it's that bloodthirstiness well, there's also certain that like there's a certain raw Americana ness about that too that is, is so at the heart of ragtime that I yeah I appreciate that. Um, for me, I think I'm gonna say back to the prologue the the clumps the the staging of the original production and the clumps of the three groups and the the story that that tells I think is so incredible. Yeah. Um, and is seen to its full um full potential at, at Radio City Music Hall for the Tony Awards and because they have the space to really like do that and and stuff like that is really hard to pull off in terms of like being a um like actually the logistics of that are really really difficult so I, that is going to get the the first part of my miscellaneous favorite thing about the prologue then this the second part of it is the 
first off, some of the like vocal arrangements and like where people are like the high Bs and like like some of the high notes that like one to two people in the company are like hitting that are like incredible. So there's that. I'm going to be Seth Rodesky for a second. But this is truly a Seth. I only know about this because of Seth Rodesky. The piano part at the end of Ragtime, at the end of the prologue, if you listen really carefully, as like all of these 50 people are singing ragtime, 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 the, the piano part goes bum, 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 and it's like this like classic ragtime um, musical piano like rag that goes down under this like massive 38 piece orchestra. Like it's this tiny detail. Once you hear it, uh, you cannot unhear it and it is so amazing and cool and just like that little flavor detail that is just so great so i i shout out to seth Redsky for his n- knowledge ear and hands that played that in the pit but um that is gonna get my miscellaneous my miscellaneous favorite thing i love it that's so great and i haven't heard that and i'm gonna go listen to it now because that's awesome it's <laughs> so good so that brings us to our uh, next to last segment corner of the sky gotta find my corner of the sky where we talk about the show's place in the musical theater canon so obviously we've said it occupies a very individual space um uh, just because of the the nature of um it being this piece of raw Americana that is emblematic of the 90s on Broadway. Um, and, and in many ways, I think is kind of America's best answer to the mega musical that the um, British um, invasion of the 80s gave us. Um, in many ways, I think it's it's kind of America's best, like, haha, we can do that too. Um, at least, or the American equivalent to that. Um, but. I think it also occupies this very interesting and singular space as the, I'm, I'm gonna put in these words and I don't know that the, these are the best words to describe it, but I think it occupies this kind of preeminent space as the kind of like heir apparent to the like great American musical that is in the classic tradition that like there hasn't quite been a show like it since and there probably won't be, but I feel like it lives in this very like collectively people acknowledge in the industry that it is a great musical, even though there's not like a ton of critical commentary out there that would necessarily support that, or at least it's not like it's making top 10 lists of greatest American musicals of all time, but yet it, it has that kind of um, reputation about it, I think for its sheer scope and um, lofty kind of, um, kind of point of view that it has or but um Annika what would you say is ragtime's corner of uh corner of the sky it's so funny I was going to say pretty much exactly that it it feels like it's um large and epic in a way that you 
really haven't seen all that often on Broadway in even like the latter half of the 20th century. Um, pretty much it's kind of in many ways a throwback to an older style of musical theater while at the same time uh, not feeling like a throwback necessarily. Um, and that's uh, kind of a remarkable thing. It, it manages to be both uh, sort of timeless and uh, sort of old fashioned in some ways. Um, and and yeah, I mean, I, you're, I think you're right that I don't know when we'll see the likes of that again because you know it costs a fortune to produce something that large, just full stop. And that will bring us to our final segment, what comes next? What comes next? Where Annika gives us a clue about the next show we'll be putting in the spotlight. So Annika, what is our clue for the next episode? Well, the next episode will be about a show that had a title song that hits number one on the Billboard singles chart, which ended the Beatles' domination of the top slot. They had been in that slot for 14 weeks in a row. And this show came to take the Beatles down. You know, if we hadn't already done hair, I would have thought my first guess would have been like, oh, we're doing something, from, we're going to do hair. Um, but we've already done hair. So there again, Michael, that's what, what's going to happen. But yeah, no, I would, but genuinely I would have thought it was hair, but we've already done it. So it can't be that. So you'll have to let your, uh, let your brains stew on that information for, uh, for a little while. And we will be back with our next episode on June 9th until then. Bye everyone. Bye everyone. This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. Our podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit www.goodspeed.org. See you next time!